The Beera Podcast. Research matters. Welcome to The Beera Podcast. I'm Nick Johnson and today my guest is Jake Anders. Jake is Associate Professor of Quantitative Social Science and Deputy Director of the UCL Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities, CPO. This centre was established in 2020 to lead research on tackling inequalities of outcomes and opportunities. Through their work, they aim to identify the barriers to opportunity and look about co-producing evidence-led policy solutions to reduce those barriers. Jake and his colleagues offer insight and impact at every stage of the life course through the centre's four main research streams, early years, schools, tertiary and adulthood. Jake's own research focuses on understanding the causes and consequences of educational inequality and the evaluation of policies and programmes aimed at reducing it. This has included research projects for multiple UK government departments, such as work for the Department for Business Innovation and Skills into the transition from education into work, as well as leading the randomised evaluation of an Education Endowment Foundation project focused on improving teachers' use of formative assessment. His doctoral research consisted of three linked studies considering aspects of socioeconomic inequality in access to higher education in England, considering both the point of entry to university, but also its precursors. This is something Jake's more recent work has developed, including work with third sector organisations on improving evaluation capacity and in a project funded by the Nuffield Foundation on the importance of subject choice at 14. In today's episode, we talk about Jake's own background, the work of the centre, and in particular, their exciting new longitudinal project aiming to provide vital new evidence on how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected socioeconomic inequalities in life chances across a cohort. Well, thanks very much for joining us today, Jake. Can we start off with a little bit about you and and sort of your research background and and how you came to be in the position you are now? Thanks for inviting me on. I'm an associate professor in the UCL Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities, where I've been for a couple of years now since the the launch of the centre, prior to which I was in the more general Department of Learning Leadership, also at uh, IOB, where I, I worked across a bunch of different projects, all kind of united by my interest in educational inequality and uh, educational evaluation. That goes, I guess, all the way back to my background in all this. I'm I'm an economist uh, by training, which I guess where where the particular focus on rigorous evaluation comes from. But I did my my PhD also at, at, at UCL, looking at inequality in access to higher education, which was a, a particular subject and interest of of mine, having worked in it sort of in in practice uh, while while I was a a student, worked on on particular kind of access schemes and and things like that and was interested in understanding how much do we actually know about this? Do we know what's working, what's not working? There's a sort of a bunch of unanswered questions here and I would like to to dig into some of them. And that was what's what really motivated me right at the start, I suppose, and things have kind of continued to trundle and and grow from there. So after my PhD, I joined the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, where I was able to work on a, a wider range of, of different projects, which was a really nice opportunity for me post-PhD and quite different to what some people get the opportunity to work on straight after a, a PhD. It can be the case that you end up focused on kind of a string of kind of more intense projects. I was able to work on a nice wide range of, of projects, including things I think maybe I wouldn't have been able to do in other environments, which 
included my opportunity to start working on randomized trials, which has become an important part of the kind of mix of, of projects that, that I work on. But all of this, I guess, continues to be a kind of a mix of different projects all around that area and all united by that interest in educational inequality and evaluation of policy and practice that uh, is is aiming to, uh, to to reduce that that inequality. And just thinking that connection to, to policy, am I right in thinking that at one point you had a secondment to the Education Select Committee? And I just wonder in terms of your experience there and whether how how they use research for looking at policy and whether that's influenced you as well. Yeah, that was a really interesting activity that I undertook as part of my, uh, well, not as part of, but but during my my PhD. It was a, a great opportunity to, to see inside an organisation that's obviously important and influential in the world of education policy in terms of critiquing the work of the Department for Education. And it was very interesting to see how they tried to engage with a wide sweep of education research. Listeners may not know that much about the way that they operate, but their MO is to proceed through running inquiries on particular topics of of interest to them. They'll normally have maybe two or three, I suppose, inquiries going on at the same time. And one of my roles while while there was, was managing uh, one of those inquiries. So it was really interesting to, alongside the members of the committee, engage quite deeply with a particular area of, of research, which was not one that I was kind of an, an expert in going into that process. I wasn't one of their specialist advisors. I was, you know, there as... Yeah. On, on that as a comment to to be one of their kind of generalist staff, so it was expected that you would engage with this this research quite quickly. You know that that has its limitations of of course, but it does allow them the the members of the the committee to make sure that they are uh, checking at. You know, it, it has to be part of their role to be checking across a whole range of different uh, important topics across the the sweep of education policy, not just their particular hobby horses or or, or interest. And now, as you say, you're you're at the Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities at, at UCL IOE. I'm right in thinking that's that's been going for just around two years now. Is that right? Yes. So we started, we soft launched just a couple of months before the pandemic uh, hits, which uh, was <laughs> perhaps poor timing in some ways, but uh, it, it's it's worked out uh, okay. It means that, yeah, we, we've been, uh, as, as a team, kind of forged through lockdown. We, we had, you know, probably only three or four in-person team meetings as a as a whole centre yeah. before all of our meetings were were online and the same as everyone else but uh, it was quite quite a transition but um a good time and uh, you know in some ways and uh, certainly an interesting time to be working in in the field and it's one that yeah. you know we've certainly tried to make sure that we're engaging with all the issues that have arisen one of the major things that the centre has obviously been known for during the pandemic has been some of the work on grades and and the challenges of teacher assessed grades uh, during that have come to the fore through the the pandemic. Yeah and, and I mean tell us a little bit about the I suppose the centre's research themes or, or sort of what what was your focus I suppose pre-pandemic and I mean I guess how that's been adapted during the pandemic but 
what what's the the center there to do so center for education policy and equalizing opportunities or cpo uh, as we call it for for short is as the name suggests really focused on tackling uh, or using education policy and wider practice to to tackle unequal opportunities that that, that exist for 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 young people uh, in in the chances they have in life we work across the lifespan we have uh, strands of research that reach all the way from early years schools tertiary so incorporating both further and higher education and into adulthood and in in that sense we we are then opportunistic and taken by yeah opportunities and, and interests that come along to to look at particular policies or interventions or uh, programs that all trying to uh, address educational inequality at these different phases in in the the life course and and the government's education policies, of course, as they relate to those different parts of the uh, the education system and and beyond, and then engaging with trying to properly analyze, evaluate, critique the work that those those policies and and practices and and the implications that they are having, whether kind of intentionally or or not, for young people's life chances. Yeah, and I mean that I think. That's one of the things that interests me particularly, I suppose, it's not just looking at the the outcomes, it's looking at the the how and the why, isn't it? And and so it's the it, it is what are the implications for policy and practice rather than just monitoring the the unequal life chances. Exactly. I think we have from the beginning set ourselves up as as a a highly policy and practice engaged centre that, you know, wants to to make sure we are taking the implications of what we're finding and, and interacting them with the, the real world in that sense. We are making sure that we aren't just sort of saying this is what's happening or, you know, this is some very nice theoretical thing about uh, the, the situation in terms of educational inequality. But what does that actually mean? What can we actually do about this? What does our evidence suggest should be changed um, as a result or indeed not changed as a result of, of yeah. these findings? Uh, and what are the kind of links that you make with with policy and practice? How do you seek to get those findings into those or to reach those audiences? I think we will take any opportunity that uh, comes along. <laughs> really, the you know the government policy making process can be a, a challenging one to kind of uh, <laughs> get uh, into, but there are opportunities that that come out. There are consultations that that published. We do our best to make sure that we input to those wherever that seems appropriate, wherever we've got a good strong evidence base to 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 provide advice or, or findings from in order to to make sure that that, that voice is, is being heard. We try and make sure we are producing outputs that are accessible to uh, people in policy. They're not only in journals and in particular journals behind paywalls, for example, but we summarise the evidence on particular topics in our, our briefing notes, for example, which uh, aim to be, you know, very tight two, three page documents that are focused on what is the issue and what does the evidence say should be be done about it. It means when you're writing one of those, you really have to focus on what what can be in this, what should be in this and, and what simply can't in order to 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 make sure that you are producing something that is likely to be 
uh, read uh, by the audience you're trying to reach it to. And we've had some really encouraging feedback um, in that regard from from civil servants at at the Department for Education. You know, this is a a, a format and a length that people think. I can engage with that. You know, I'm I'm a busy person. I've got a lot to do, but I can sit and 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 read this, and it will help me understand where the evidence is on this particular topic in a way that they may simply not have time to go through either a full literature review or you know individual article contributions. On Thursday the 2nd of December, we will be holding our annual lecture in partnership with the Commonwealth Council for Educational Administration and Management, CCEAM. Professor David Gurr from the University of Melbourne will be talking on educational leadership through and beyond the pandemic. The event will consider the rapidly growing literature, the impact of and responses to the pandemic on schools, and the implications for education and educational leadership. Whilst the pandemic is an ongoing major disruption to education across the world, and many are predicting revolutionary change. David will argue that changes to education and educational leadership will be more evolutionary than revolutionary. Registration is free. Please visit www.bira.ac.uk forward slash events. For Bira members, our AGM takes place online on Thursday the 9th of December at 11am. We will be reviewing activity throughout the 2021 academic year with highlights drawn out by Bira's officers, myself and committee chairs. Members will be able to hear how BIRA has adapted and responded to the challenges posed by COVID-19 and open access. The next iteration of BIRA's strategic plan and the latest developments in awards, publications, grants and events. And in terms of your your sort of research agenda, you mentioned that the the pandemic hit soon after the centre was was up and running, um, and you talked a little bit about some of the the, the interim things that you were doing. Do you, can you talk us a little bit about the, the sort of the big projects arising out of the pandemic that that you're looking to develop now? Yeah, so the biggest and uh, most ambitious uh, work that has has come out of the pandemic for us is a new cohort study, which we are in the process of establishing along with partners at uh, the Sutton Trust and UCL Centre for Longitudinal Studies, building on their expertise of, of running cohort studies. So what is a cohort study? A cohort study is a focused on, on one particular cohort of, of young people. We try and recruit into this study a, a large number of of young people, a, a large kind of representative sample of young people from across the country. And the aim will be to keep coming back to them over the next few years to allow us to amass data based on on their responses to surveys and potentially also linked administrative data that tells us about the kind of short, medium and longer term impacts of what's going on in in their lives. So in particular, in in this case, as you asked in in the question, what what are you doing in response to the pandemic? This particular cohort study was, was a particular response to the pandemic. We are in the field at the moment and trying to get interviews from young people who were in year 11 last year and are now either in year 12 or perhaps in an education institution where they wouldn't think of it as year 12 or indeed not in an education yeah. institution doing something else. But we we want to speak to 
people, regardless of what they're doing, but united by the fact that they were in year 11 last year. And so we think are among the cohorts who have been most dramatically affected by the restrictions as a result of, of COVID-19. They're GCSEs last year were teacher assessed grades rather than kind of traditional exams, as it were. They suffered a year of on and off kind of disruption and and disruption towards the end of, of their year tenure, particularly dramatically at the, the start of the, the first lockdown, of course. And we want to make sure that we're capturing a picture of the diversity of the experiences of, of young people across that that year group. We want to make sure we're capturing people across ethnic groups and socioeconomic status backgrounds have as part of this cohort, yeah, a real diversity of experience so that we can look at in the short term data on stuff like their their well-being and 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 so on. But then also, as you say, hopefully tracking them in the coming years, understand how how some of these differences in, in experience seem to be linked with their ongoing life chances in, in, in coming years. I mean, you mentioned the, the need to get a diversity within the sort of the sample that you've recruited for this. How have you gone about sort of putting together that sample size and representation of different elements within that? So we're aiming to recruit around 12,000 young people from across uh, England. And the way that we've sought to uh, recruit that sample is, is we've worked in in partnership with the Department for Education to be able to use the the National Pupil Database, so the administrative data set that, that they hold of, of all of the young people in year 11 last year, so that we're able to select a, a, a random sample, sort of a random sample from that. Um, I say yeah. sort of a random sample because it's, it's, it's random, but with some kind of uh, deliberate attempts at, at making things a bit uh, disproportionate towards groups who are of smaller size in the population. So those from ethnic minority backgrounds, for example, such that we are able to make sure that we are able to make comparisons between groups or, or look at particular subgroups without there right. being too few to be able to do statistical uh, analyses of those groups. Slight element of oversampling of some groups, but within a, a very large number overall. And so is this the sort of the, going to be the first year of, of field work, I suppose, in gathering information from them? Exactly. So that's all underway at the moment. Young people and their parents uh, across the country received uh, letters from us and a large number have already very kindly participated in, in the surveys that we uh, sent to them, which is really exciting. That effort is obviously con continuing and we will hopefully be getting uh, more more responses before we finish that um, and before we start doing kind of analysis uh, analyses of the first uh, wave of data but that's that's where we are right right now the surveys are out there it all feels in some ways a bit scarily out of our control but uh, uh, it's really exciting and <laughs> and you know, really, really great to see how many young people and their parents are keen to be part of this, because at the end of the day, the, the whole point of this is to make sure that we're hearing their voices and, and hearing, as I say, that diversity of voices as, as part of this study. And you mentioned you're, you're doing it in partnership with, uh, or one of your partners is the Sutton Trust. What do they bring to the 
to the work and how do they complement the work that you're doing? So Set and Trust were one of the kind of uh, initiators of this idea. So they are absolutely uh, core to the to, to the project, but they obviously bring particular expertise around the kind of policy engagement and uh, impact of, of research in, in this area. They've got you know, a fantastic track record in terms of supporting and and then getting behind really important pieces of of research in terms of our understanding of of things like intimate generational uh, mobility and and so on. They're an organisation I've worked with in the past as well. So we think that's that's really crucial in terms of you know at all stages of the process, making sure we're designing the study with with it possible to have that impact in mind as well as achieving that impact itself when we get to the point of yeah. of trying to uh, disseminate and and share the findings and what what are the kind of timescales you're looking at for this how far into the future are you hoping to track them yeah so we hope that sometime in the, the middle of next year we will have some data and analyses to share with the research and policy communities just about this this First year, obviously, we hope that assuming things have gone to plan with this first one, that we will certainly be doing another survey uh, next year, supported by ESRC. But you know, our, our ambition certainly goes beyond that as as well. We're mm. you know much it's much less certain what we will be able to do going forward, but we we hope to be able to continue following them for ideally kind of intensively, as in sort of every year or so for the next uh, few years while they're making kind of really key transitions within education and, and into the labour market, making transitions within education and into the labour market. But also we ideally want to to carry on following them beyond that as well probably at sort of something of a slightly less regular rhythm but you know in common with with previous cohort studies like the millennium cohort study in next steps it's as these get longer that you know the the value is really realized that's when you're able to answer questions about you know longer term relationships about where you were when you were about age 16 and the situation you found yourself in, in this case, because of COVID, how that's correlated with how the opportunities you you have and then what that turns into as as mm. you get older. So we certainly hope to be able to, to collect data as, as part of that. We also have linked administrative data sort of questions as as part of uh, this that sounds like a really technical and boring thing but uh, I'm, I'm going to try and make it sound interesting important and exciting <laughs> because we think it is the department for education along with other parts of the, the uk government have a data set that's known as the longitudinal educational outcomes data set or leo which basically links up the national people database i mentioned earlier with with people's tax records and and other relevant uh, and employment records as as they get older mm. and that's been used kind of in standalone ways for for analyses uh, you know kind of all all carefully within a, a managed environment and, and things like this of of course because of the data protection uh, implications but but very carefully uh, managed but to be able to answer you know really important questions about uh, links between educational attainment while people are at school with wages and so on when they are quite a bit older and being able to do that at 
at population level is is really interesting and uh, and important, of course, and, and allows you to do things you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. But linking it back again with survey data, as the the survey data that we've had, which allows yeah. us to paint a much richer picture of young people's backgrounds, but then allows us also to to kind of learn about their employment and uh, income outcomes many years down the line, um, even if we're not able to follow them for for some other reason. Um, if they've given us permission to do so, I should stress, we think is is a really important uh, value added to, to to all of this work. Well, your work is is England and it's linked to the Department for Education. Are you aware of any similar kind of work being done either within the rest of the UK or internationally? That I mean, I guess one of the things that people might want to look at further down the line is comparisons of what's happened here as opposed to what's happened elsewhere. We perhaps in an ideal world would love to have done this for, for UK wide as well. It's it's yeah. worth saying. There are some challenging reasons why that, that becomes quite quite difficult in terms of basically it's yeah. about administrative data and where you can start from essentially. But those issues to one side, we, we have been talking with partners in um, other constituent countries of the UK, including the Schools Health Research Network in Wales and the Growing Up in Scotland team um, at NatSen in Scotland, both of whom are, are collecting data. Growing Up in Scotland is a kind of ongoing co-hosted. It's not quite the same as as this, but we've had conversations where we, you know, tried to to work out what we may be able to collect in in common in terms of allowing for the potential of, of comparing things across countries in that way. We've always had conversation with the team in 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 the US who were kind of interested in what we were doing and uh, maybe trying to 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 do a kind of similar effort in in the in the states as well. So yeah, it's all very important. Whenever you're doing these sorts of these sorts of studies, you do have to think about you know what the the comparison is. These things are you know generally comparative by nature, and while we'll be able to look within our our cohort, we will also want to look uh, as you say cross country, but also cross cohort, cross time to be able to compare with earlier cohorts such as the Millennium Cohort Study or or the Next Steps cohort who didn't have the coronavirus pandemic as part of their education and being able to compare things over time in terms of their experiences. It's always challenging because, you know, other things have changed too, but trying to paint a, a picture of, of that sort of thing will be an important part of, of the, the work we will be wanting to do with the data once it's available. Yeah, well, it sounds a, sounds a very exciting project and we shall watch this space for, for the first set of results in sometime in the first part of 2022, we hope. What, what just, just sort of before we finish, what else is on the centre's agenda at the moment? What are the the other priorities over the next sort of six to nine months? Well, there's uh, a lot of different things going on, to be honest. So some of my colleagues working on other things that that come out of the the pandemic, for example, some of the work we've uh, had previously in the the Centre on Educational Mismatch. So mismatch between where young people sort of look like they could apply to university based on their grades and where they actually choose to apply to university. That's something that uh, my colleague Jill Wyness has has looked at uh, in the past, but is doing updating work on that uh, to understand kind of the the impacts of the the pandemic on some of the dynamics of that as well. For example, my colleague Sam Sims' uh, ongoing work on things uh, including teacher professional uh, development. Recently, some work published by the Education Endowment Foundation looking at what makes for good professional development, and that's an ongoing 
kind of uh, strand and an interest in research for him. And there will be more along those lines uh, in the future, I'm sure, too. Great. Well, thank you very much for, for joining us today to, to discuss the work. And I say we'll, we will look forward to seeing the, the centre's outputs in, in the months to come, in particular the, the COSMO study into next year and, and hopefully well beyond. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. The Bira blog aims to provide research-informed content on key educational issues to policymakers, academics, parents, teachers, educational leaders, members of school communities, and anyone interested in educational research. We've recently published our thousandth post and celebrated by republishing some of our favourite posts in a special issue. To view that and all the latest blogs, please visit www.bira.ac.uk forward slash blog. If you are enjoying our podcast, please do look at the range of Bira's online events. These occur at least weekly throughout most of the year on a range of topics and almost all are free to Bira members who can join live or watch a recording afterwards. To find out more, please visit www.bira.ac.uk forward slash events.